Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, to whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Uh, By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I want to ask you a question tonight. What is, if you were to be asked at this moment, the best news that you ever got in your life? The best news that you ever got. You know, uh, humanly speaking, um, I'll be honest with you, and this is probably going to hurt his uh, sisters for me to say that, but I'll be honest with you, we were extraordinarily excited to find out that our third child was going to be a boy. I mean, I had fallen in love with little girls uh, when we had our first two children, but you know, there was something about the idea that there was going to be a little man running in the, around the house. It was a big moment for me, and I remember how different life looked after thinking, man, I've got a son now. What in the world? Y'all, spiritually speaking, what we're going to talk about tonight stands out in my memory as the best thing that I've ever heard. Um, And I don't want to exaggerate when I say that I tried for a long time over the break to think of some sort of clever, sort of a pithy illustration uh, to pitch this whole topic to you. But what I'm going to opt out for is what I'll refer to as the personal testimony route. In other words, if I had to pinpoint in my life the most radical change after which nothing was the same, it was after someone sat down and explained what I'm going to try to explain to you tonight. It's my testimony, to be quite frank with you. Now, pause for just a moment, because I always wonder what it is that you think that I'm going to say whenever I mention the idea of a personal testimony. Um, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, most people's testimonies came to me in one of two forms. Uh, The first kind was the person who would stand up and basically talk about the fact that, you know, they had had enough. Uh, They had reached rock bottom, uh, and it was time for a change. And so they simply decided that they would stop putting God in a corner, and they would live all out for him. You know, they were setting aside all this sort of lackluster Christianity. This time they were going to go for it. They were going to try harder. The second kind of testimonies I heard were from people who would say, that there came this moment, sometimes it was during a conference or a sermon or maybe even just by themselves, when a strange, inexplicable something just happened to them. 
And there was a day and a place and a time when this indescribable something just came over it, over them, and it shook them, and it broke them, and everything afterwards was completely different. These are the testimonies I felt like that I had heard growing up as people would share them with me. Look, y'all, we've been trying to deal this semester with how to deal with boredom with Christianity. And you know, in thinking about this topic, it occurred to me that boredom and depression are actually probably very closely linked. Have you ever noticed this? Um, I get very sad in my own life uh, whenever I don't have any good news in it. Well, look, y'all, the heart of this story, the heart of my own story, um, the reason why everything started changing for me, and I'm not talking about change in terms of radical change in behavior. That's been plenty of struggle. But I'm saying when everything seemed different, didn't happen because I sort of welled up some kind of new determination to do better next time. Nor was it something that I had some very strange and explicable uh, ecstatic experience. It wasn't either of those things. It was because for the first time I heard something that when, when we got to the end of it, I thought to myself, man, people ought to know that. <laughs> like that's a good thing. This is good news. And I discovered what I thought was the power of good news. Now, unfortunately for many of you, you're going to have to suffer through my particular path through discovering that good news. And my path came through two big words, two little theological words that if you can get a grasp on them, I think contain within them marvelously good news. And I know for a lot of us, it goes against our grain to be like, oh, great. Here we go with this long, drawn-out, boring theological talk. Look, this, these theological terms are like hard candy. If you can sort of get through the hard outer core on the inside, there's something extraordinarily sweet. So walk with me through this. I simply want to introduce you to two words tonight, and we'll be through. The first one is the idea of justification. Look, y'all, in verse 21, Paul gives his very famous, but now. But now. So you can tell that all of a sudden he's now ready to talk about how it is that mankind can get on God's good side. You have labored through three weeks of hearing about how man is on God's bad side in his natural state. And for a moment all of a sudden we get him talking about this idea of the righteousness of God again. And this righteousness he says is distinctive. Why? Because it's received by faith. Now Stay tuned next week. We're going to talk all about that next week. But then he comes and reiterates his whole argument in verse 23 because he says that there's this great problem with human sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But verse 24 is where the magic word is. It's worth underlining. It's worth putting stars around. It's worth circling. Whatever it is that you do with your Bible, this is the big one. Because he says, and are justified by his grace. Look, what Paul means by that term, I think, is at the heart of our good news. So much so that it led the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, to stand up and say, this doctrine is the cornerstone upon which the church stands or falls. You get this, you have the essence of the church. Miss this, and you've missed the whole gospel. Note to self. All right, what can we say about justification? I want to run three ideas past you just to get you thinking about this. Because honestly, it takes a little time to let it cook. But let me see if I can introduce it to you with three ideas. Number one, what does Paul mean by justification? Well, what he means, first of all, 
when we see this sort of terminology is we start to think to ourselves, well, here we go again with all this theological language and excessive you know, verbiage that's going to get thrown at us uh, to confuse us. But look, I want to simply pitch at you that the idea of justification is much more familiar to you than you think. You see, justification is nothing more than any attempt that you made, I would even say any attempt that you made this week at justifying your existence. Now, what do I mean by that, justifying my existence? What are you talking about, Les? Well, let me ask you a question. What did you do this week when you went to school? Well, this week you probably studied a good bit, may have gone to the library, you probably did a lot of work, maybe you typed out a paper. Why? Well, you did that because you're hoping that the degree that you get from this institution will one day lead to you, what, making something of yourself. Some of you seniors are getting this uh, question from older people. So, do you have any plans for the fall? (laughs) And the second question, you know what the second question is, seniors? And are you seeing someone special? (laughs) Just to give you a little preview of what's coming. That has nothing to do with the lesson. It's just sort of a little, little tip there. In other words, you wanted to make something of yourself. Now, that's the first thing you did. The second thing you did is you probably spent some time socializing with people. You know, old Miss people tend to gather at social places, bars and whatnot, you know, spending the entire night sort of scanning the place for attractive people, people for whom you might make a connection. Why? Because you're looking for someone who will make you feel important, who will value you for, uh, for who you are as a person, for all the things that you really want out of life, who will actually make life exciting. Look, I'm simply trying to pitch to you that much of your time this week has been spent in the activity of justification because you've been trying to wrestle for this idea of why am I here? Look, at Ole Miss, careers and spouses tend to be two of the most pursued justifications. But look, y'all, in the years to come, there's going to be plenty more. For a lot of you, eventually children will come, and you'll find that children have a very powerful way of making me feel important, to feel meaningful, to feel purposeful in life. Look, believe it or not, even your religious activity, see, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, listen, I'm not one of those bar people, right? I don't do that. But here's the funny thing. Religious activity, coming to RUF even, can itself be a quest for justification, You know, people say things like, oh, you know, I have to just be open to Christ. You know, Les, I have made a decision to be totally committed to Christ. Les, I've completely surrendered myself to him, you know. I'm going to live for him completely. You know, come into my life and save me. Oh, Lord, come into my life. And in the end, what we say is, is, you know, I did this thing. I went to Mass. I took the sacrament. I taught Sunday school. Uh, I went on the retreat. I came to RUF. But here's what Paul is saying. He's saying if those things are done in order to sort of make yourself who you are, it's not what he's referring to. Look, it's a longing to count in the world. That's what justification is. It's not just for the religious, but it's for the irreligious as well. Or actually should flip-flop that. It's not just for the irreligious. It's for religious people too. So much activity can be spent in longing to make myself count That's what justification is. And you've all been doing it all week long. Secondly, look, Luther worked very hard to explain during the Reformation that justification was not something that was done in you, but rather justification was something that was done about you. Let me see if I can explain. 
The word justification actually comes from an ancient Near Eastern uh, version of a legal uh, terminology. In other words, justification is what a lawyer or a judge, if you will, did in you and for you, right? Um, Now look, what's the difference? Well, I want you to imagine something. Let's imagine that you say something to me and I'm not sure that I buy it. I'm not sure I'm actually buying into what it is that you're saying, right? And I look at you and I say, I want you to justify that statement for me. Now, what do I mean when I say that? I'm not saying I want you to change the statement. Does that make sense? What I want you to do is I want you to change my relationship to the statement. In other words, back that statement up, right? Uh, Help me understand that what you said was true. Help change where I stand with what you said, right? Folks, that's exactly what Paul means here. And what Luther was trying to say, this is so huge. I've been searching for ways to illustrate this for you and I can't find any. Paul is saying that when God comes and deals with broken sinners like we've been talking about in weeks to come, he doesn't make us righteous. You've got to hear this. God does not come in and make you righteous. What he does is he declares us to be righteous. Legally righteous. He changes our status. He doesn't change us. He changes our relationship to him. He changes our standing towards him. He changes the way in which he looks at us. Look, y'all, this is a source of huge confusion among people who have just kind of entered into Christianity. Because early on, you have people who have some kind of religious something that happens. Maybe, maybe they make a commitment. They pledge themselves to follow God this time, right? But suddenly, sometimes it's very quickly, just as soon as you get home from the retreat, right? They suddenly find that their resolve that they had while they were on the retreat just went away really quickly. (laughs) Or they found out that their old sins, their old addictions that they've been wrestling with are a whole lot stronger than they thought. And you know what they suddenly think? They think, I'm on the outs. (laughs) I'm on the outs. God and I's relationship is threatened. And the old guilty threats start kind of powering in on us. They've gotten away from God. That's what we're talking about. I don't know, Les, when I was here my freshman year, I just felt like I'd gotten away from God. That's how we talk, isn't it? But see, Paul is saying, look, when God first comes in and works in you, he doesn't do something in you until he does something about you. That is, he starts with acceptance of you. And only then, and funny, on the basis of that acceptance, does he start to change you from the inside out. This is absolutely huge, y'all. We are, you want to know why this is giant? Because we are constantly trying to reverse the process. God looks and says, I'm going to begin with acceptance of a broken sinner. And on the basis of that acceptance, I want you to live in the light of that and see what happens to you. What kind of molding, what kind of change happens because of that? What we do, though, is we flip-flop and we say, well, as soon as I've kind of gotten this particular part of my life cleaned up, then I will believe that God actually cares about me. In other words, we say, if I could clean this up, if I can fix this area, then suddenly God will actually cast his eyes in favor towards me. Look, y'all, that is the opposite of Christianity. It's the exact opposite Again, I'm looking for ways to illustrate this to you. God does something about you, not in you, in justification. Thirdly, look, every commentator that I read on this passage made this point. That justification, therefore, because of what I just said in the last point, is so much more than forgiveness. (laughs) That's worth writing down. Got a lot of note takers here. It's more than forgiveness. 
Look, this is a huge deal. It is wonderful to know that you're forgiven. It's not less than that. But when you look at, look at that question really carefully, being forgiven by God is not enough. I want you to think about this. To only be granted God's forgiveness is not enough. Why? Look, because if it's true that salvation is nothing more than God saying, I forgive you, you're forgiven. Then the truth of the matter is, my salvation is still up to me. Do you want to know why? Because when God forgives something, what he forgives is everything in my past. In other words, it's the stuff that I've done from here back, right? But the funny thing is, you have to be troubled by the question, what about my future? What about what's coming for me? See, because here's the reason why people are insecure. People are insecure because they know that maybe God forgave me for my past. But the truth of the matter is, I'm still back on probation. You ever thought of this? Don't let him go back there again. My son's racing up and down the hall. Bear with me. In other words, we look and say, God, let me offer these things. But we have this gnawing sense, don't we? That God's up in heaven saying to himself, okay, okay. Look, we'll let you off this time, but you better watch out for the next time. And we live with a cloud of suspicion. And see, this is what's so crazy. Y'all, I thought this was the Christian life. The Christian life was a cloud of suspicion over my head that threatened me with the next time that I messed up. And I used to think that the darker the cloud that I could form over my head, the more it would, it would twist me and conform me into what I was supposed to be. It never worked. There was, you want to know why? Because there was no joy there. Look, y'all, justification is not less than pardon. It's so much more. Do you want to know what it is? It's God giving you a brand new status, the status of his son. Let me give you an illustration. This is an adaptation of another illustration that I'd heard from somebody else. Uh, over the break, I was driving across campus, and for whatever reason, I was in a giant hurry. And you know that this campus is not the place to be in a hurry when you want to get to someplace because there's always somebody that you get behind. And I got behind somebody who was clearly lost. Do you know what they look like? I mean, they're crawling at like 10 miles an hour. They're doing this, you know, looking around and they're slowing down. They're looking at a map in their hands. Well, I'm sitting back there. They're driving so slow and I can feel my temperature, you know, kind of going up. I'm sure that I mouthed off something, you know, unexcusable in my car, which is where it's safe to say stuff like that, you know. But they finally found where they were going uh, near the Union, which is actually where I was going, right near the ROTC building. Well, I climbed out of my car at the Union, and I do what I'm often known to do. It embarrasses my wife beyond description. I decided to give the clown in that car one last kind of glaring glance, you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like, you know, just to let them know what an idiot I think that they are. Out of the car stepped this very tall uh, uh, man, probably my age or a little bit older, um, dressed in full military uh, dress. I mean, he was, dre- he was decked out. He was clearly going someplace or some meeting in the ROTC building. And suddenly everything changed. And i got to explain why. And I'm really not sure why, but there's a part of me that is just c- kind of freaked out by people in the military. <laughs> Um, simply because I think they're the bravest people I know. I have some family that served in the military, and I've heard the kinds of stories. Um, like war movies, I don't know, for some reason they disturb me. I don't even exactly know why. 
violence or something about it. But I, I've always held military people in very high esteem. I get kind of, you know, out of their way when they come down the hall. Look, y'all, suddenly <laughs> I looked very differently. My anger and my irritation instantaneously turned to awe and appreciation. Why? But look, y'all, this is exactly what justification is. You see, that guy's behavior was still irritating to me. It was still driving me crazy. But what happened, what changed, was the way in which I viewed him. Why? Because I saw how he was dressed. That was the difference. Look, Paul is saying that in justification, in a flash moment, God clothes you in something that when he sees it, fills his heart with awe and delight, fills his heart with awe and delight and joy and pride. Do you want to know what that outfit is? It's the white robes washed in the blood of Jesus. That's it. The image that you get throughout the scripture. I've been clothed in something different. And here's the thing. Most of you think intuitively that what those Bible verses mean is about you getting your life cleaned up. Oh, right, the white robes. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I quit drinking. <laughs> so most of us think of this campus as the highest pinnacle of righteousness. I quit drinking. God is looking and saying, look, this is not the point. The point is I don't care how much drinking you quit. It's not going to fix the problem. It's not your heart. You know what you need? You need a new outfit. <laughs> because you're in a bad standing with me. And I've got to clothe you in something different. And I'm going to clothe you in every single thing that my son did while he was on this earth. Let me illustrate it this way. You remember when Jesus is talking to John the Baptist and he goes up to be baptized by him? And he's kind of freaking John the Baptist out. John the Baptist is like, oh, uh, me baptize you? You're supposed to baptize me. Remember what Jesus said to him? He looks and he goes, look, suffice it for now, John, in order to, what? Fulfill all righteousness. You see what Jesus is doing at that moment? Jesus is saying, you got to understand, John, I am not just here to forgive the sins of my people. I am here to grant them a perfect life record that will then be the thing, listen, 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 that my Father looks at when they judge them. <laughs> it means that when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, He sees the stuff that He sees in Jesus. Admit that you're intimidated by some of the descriptions of Christ in the New Testament. I mean, the descriptions of Christ, of His perfection, of His holiness, of His wonder, of the way in which people followed Him. You look at that and go, ooh, you know, Jesus, gotta be careful following Jesus. And you do. But that's not where the real kick is. The real kick is the fact is that God is going to count you as if you look like him <laughs> because of the way you're dressed. Um, I don't know. It's the best I can do. <laughs> it was different after that because suddenly I felt like I was off the treadmill. It, really, it wasn't the cloud that was trying to motivate me. But it was a father who actually saw me the way he saw Jesus, which means he wasn't looking at me in condescension, but he was looking at me with love and with delight. That's just different, y'all. Okay, last thought, and we'll finish with this. You need to be thinking at this point, man, that would be really cool if it could really be true. How could that possibly be true? 
Well, it says it right there in verses 24 and 25. Paul says that the justification came how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, here's your next big word, as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation. That's the second word I want you to circle, underline, put arrows on. What does it mean? Well, look, look out. What that word means is it means to divert wrath. To, to, to actually propitiate means to actually take the anger that God has towards his people and to divert it. Now, look, I recognize that for most people on this campus, that's so primitive. <laughs> and honestly, I think the reason why that sounds primitive to you is because you may not have children yet. Um, look, university types like ourselves love to sort of um, object to this kind of teaching by saying, oh, please, don't tell me you're really one of those religious people that thinks that God is like angry at people. Look, I believe in a God of love. I believe there's no wrath to be averted in, in salvation. We merely need to accept God's unconditional love on the basis of nothing. Love and anger in a modern person's mind are like mutually exclusive terms. <laughs> But in, in my opinion, I simply want to pitch to you that that's just naive. Look, I would actually argue that you actually can't really love something unless you are equally angry at whatever it is that might separate you from that lovely, loving thing. Look, y'all, and nowhere is this more vividly embodied than in the life of your children. <laughs> Look, I know parents who have walked with, with their children through all manner of addiction, embarrassment, heartache, destruction and they're livid at every turn but they still stick in why because they love their child look y'all in your child you begin to see that sin destroys and that by definition is loving to hate the destruction of what we love one writer said look the anger is not the opposite of love right Hate is, and the final form of hate is simple indifference. The opposite of hate is indifference, is simply not caring. My friends, just because God is angry does not mean that he does not love. I would argue that the fact of his anger means that he loves. It's not primitive. It's the essence and part and parcel to it. But secondly, what does that mean? Look, I want you to notice that it was God's anger that was diverted by Jesus' blood shedding. In other words, Jesus' blood was exchanged for something. And once again, I realize as soon as I say that, you start to think, please, is this really going to be one of those fundamentalist places like I grew up in? You know, it sounds like a sheer barbarism to most of the new atheists, right? That somehow some man's brutal death from 2,000 years ago is somehow supposed to keep God from being angry with me? What in the world do those two things have to do with each other? But you know what? That's only accurate if it was a mere man who died 2,000 years ago. Look, y'all, the fact that some random stranger dies 2,000 years ago doesn't mean a thing. You're right. But what if that man was God in the flesh? Then all of a sudden it takes on a new meaning, does it not? Look, if you have this picture of God as some sort of, I don't know, some sort of cosmic transcendental Shylock who's sort of demanding his pound of flesh from you, then, then, then I'll be honest with you, that's probably a t you probably have a, a twisted view of what the cross was about. But look, y'all, when you realize that that's inaccurate, you may begin to see that what happens in the cross, what Jesus is doing, because he is God himself, 
is he's saying, look, the blood to be shed should be theirs. But I'm going to turn the gun on myself. I'm going to absorb in my own person all of the violence, all of the hatred, all of the animosity, all of the lust, all of the destruction, all of the wars, all of the poverty, all of the pain, all of the heartache that we've been inflicting on each other for years. God looks and says, I will take the hit. And what results? Propitiation. (laughs) It's a beautiful word. Look, I only saw the movie Life is Beautiful once. But I remember it vividly. And I think many of you who saw the movie remember it vividly. Because I have this picture in my mind of the very sad eyes of Roberto Benigni looking back at his son uh, as he's escorted away to the firing squad. Man, I can conjure that up in a moment. And the funny thing was... (laughs) I think most people on the planet, it was a worldwide success, that movie, Life is Beautiful. Everyone on the planet was moved by it. They were inspired by it. They were emboldened of the thought that there would be a father who would shield his son away from the wrath of the enemy by taking the supreme punishment on himself. I mean, for those of you that saw it, did that not embolden you at the end of that? Did you not walk up inspired? And I simply want to pitch this to you. Is it not possible that the reason why the world lit up at the sight of that and awarded the man an Academy Award for it is because it resonated something in our soul that's true at the very core of the universe. That there is a God who is holy and there is mankind who is not. But the good news is that God has paid the punishment and taken it on himself And that there's a father who looks with those sad Roberto Benigni eyes and says, this is the only way. This is the only way. But because of it, you'll win what I have for you on the other side. After that, y'all, nothing was the same. (laughs) Considered an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You know how much I struggle to illustrate these kinds of things. But it's not hard for me to take myself back to that small little cubicle in seminary, reading a textbook of all things, when all of a sudden this hit me, that you wanted to do something about me before you did something in me, and indeed probably already had. Lord Jesus, it was the first time that I saw you without a frowning face. And it was the first time I thought that people ought to know that. And here, 18, almost 20 years later, looking at the faces of my friends here, I really want them to know this. That even if they walk away and reject Christianity tonight, that they walk away from the real thing and not a caricature, not something that's been misapplied, mispresented, or even twisted by our own sinful hearts, Lord Jesus, we want for you to work in us. We want for you to change us. And so your Holy Spirit needs to tell us what these words mean that came to us in Romans 3. Maybe tonight, even in the midst of a basketball game, maybe you might call our hearts. Let us entertain the the, the crazy thought that despite our sin, you might have covered it with a new clothing.
that you look at us entirely different. Lord Jesus, would you do that in us? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.